You're listening to another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A deep dive into a classic show whose influence is immeasurable. Your next stop, Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast where I review The Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer and other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology series. For archives of all of my episodes, visit AnthologyPod.com. You can also like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod, and follow me on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. And as uh, while every episode of this podcast will always be free. If you'd like to support what I do here, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer, where you can get access to exclusive B-roll episodes, TV and book reviews, movie reaction recordings, commentary tracks, and early access to podcast episodes, and previously unreleased content. So I have a few different uh, tiers there. You can check that out at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. But recently, I just did episode by episode reviews of the first season of Apple TV Plus's Severance, which by the way, Holy crap, that show just blew me away. Absolutely blew me away. Um, so I have about five hours worth of audio talking about Severance on there at the $2 level, plus a whole bunch of other stuff that spreads across all three of the podcasts that I do. So anyway, uh, check that out, patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. Um, your support helps, uh, helps me out tremendously. And even if you're just listening to this and not supporting me on Patreon, I'm just glad that to have you here. So thank you guys so much. Um, okay. So today on the show, I'm going to be discussing my thoughts on Showdown with Rance McGrew. It's the 20th episode of The Twilight Zone's third season, and it originally aired on February 2nd, 1962. And I'll be rounding out the episode with a brief review of Science Fiction Theater Season 1, Episode 27, titled The Watermaker. Um, But before I get into the actual episode, I do have a couple of things that I want to hit for news and everything that's kind of somewhat related to what I do here on Anthology. Um, So as you guys should hopefully know, I do bonus episode review series on different shows. Um, One of those big ones is Black Mirror. And um, I said previously that back in May... um, they announced uh, that season six of Black Mirror is coming. It's going to be more episodes than season five, which was in 2019. No idea how many more or what have you, but um, season five was three episodes, so it could be six, it could be 12, who knows how many it's going to be. But uh, that was announced in May, and then uh, since then, a bunch of casting announcements have been made. No word on... um, There's no word on when we can expect the season to drop on Netflix, but um, the most recent casting news that hit was that uh, Rory Culkin, Salma Hayek, and Annie Murphy are going to be joining the cast of season six. Um, Rory Culkin, uh, I know him primarily from Scream 4. Uh, Salma Hayek, of course, is, you know, legendary. Um, and Annie Murphy, she is known from Schitt's Creek. I haven't seen Schitt's Creek, but she was in an episode of Murderville on Netflix, which I really enjoyed. Um, so anyway, um, hopefully we get word of when season six is going to come out because I, anytime Black Mirror is about to come out, I get very anxious because 
I want to do bonus episode reviews of that. And like right now, I'm really, really hitting my stride with anthology. I'm putting out some what uh, consistent content, I'll say. <laughs> That's up to you to decide if it's good content or bad, but it's consistent at least, which I'm very happy with myself for. Um, but, you know, Black Mirror Season 6 comes out. I don't want it to derail me from my consistency and output. So anyway, uh, that's the latest news on season six of Black Mirror. The other piece of information I have before I get into the episode is that um, longtime listeners will know that Science Fiction Theater, the show that I do uh, bonus brief reviews at the end of each episode of, um, science fiction theater had a DVD set that was out. Like it was, you know, there's a complete series DVD set that unfortunately went out of print some years ago. I have that. I own that. And I've always thought like, even though most, if not all, of the episodes can be found online for free on like that daily motion website and occasionally on YouTube. Uh, by the way, this week's episode is available on daily motion. I have a link in the show notes, but anyway, um, I've always like kind of lamented that, Oh, people can't get like physical media of science fiction theater. So last night I was browsing eBay just for, just for my own curiosity. Um, and, uh, I saw that there are DVDs of science fiction theater for sale on eBay, and it's not like the commercial released box set that I own because that's out of print and that obviously costs an arm and a leg and everything. It's kind of a collector's item now. If you go on Amazon, you can buy it for like $200 or something like that. It's ridiculous. Don't don't spend $200 on this show, please. I mean, it's a good show and everything, but don't just, that's a ridiculous uh, use of money. I, I, that's, that's a waste of money. I bought it for like 20 bucks when it was, when it was in print and I'm very thankful for that, but don't spend like $200 on this. Um, but on eBay, there is at least one seller. And I think there are some others that do this too, but one seller in particular who is selling the complete series for only $19 and it's a buy it now price thing. It is, they have multiple versions of it or multiple copies. Um, there are some caveats with that. Uh, those aren't the DVD releases that I own. Like, it's not the complete series DVD set that I own. These are, from what I could glean, there's a very long disclaimer on the eBay page. I have a link in the show notes if you want to check it out, if you want to buy buy this uh, series. But from what I gather, it's basically like this person has put together a DVD a DVD collection of science fiction theater, all 78 episodes, um, from where it is available online and packaged it together in, in a region free DVD set. Uh, I think it's like two DVDs, I think. Um, and they're selling it on eBay because it is public domain. So the quality may not be that great, but if you want to own science fiction theater on physical media and watch it along with me and everything, uh, I would think I'm not going to endorse this eBay seller because I don't know anything. I don't know anything about the quality. I don't know anything about uh, the seller or anything. They have like a 99% uh, positive rating on there, so they must be good. But um, in any case, if you want to own it <laughs> on physical media, I think that this is probably your best bet. And I was really excited too because... There is also other sellers, other stores, other places on eBay that have like 
the same kind of deal, but for like wildly out of like, like almost lost to time shows like journey to the unknown. That's was an early, early science fiction anthology show tales of tomorrow, which like next time I get paid, I'm going to probably snatch up one of those. Cause I really want to own that. Um, and, uh, out there I think is also on there, but yeah. So anyway, if you're looking to collect science fiction anthology shows, or like very out out of like out of time uh tv shows and everything uh give ebay a shot because they might have what you're looking for so okay so that is all the news and stuff i have up front on this episode so um i'm gonna go ahead and go into my thoughts on uh uh showdown with ransom mcgrew uh, of course this is the moment where i tell you guys that i am going to be spoiling the entirety of the episode right from the jump so uh if you haven't seen the episode go watch it on paramount plus and then come back and uh, give a listen to my review. So with the spoiler warning out of the way, I'm going to go ahead and read the plot summary of Showdown with Rance McGrew, courtesy of The Twilight Zone, Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grahams Jr. Actor Rance McGrew, the star of his own television western, is late for work, forgets his lines, and has a quick has a problem quick drawing his six shooter. He believes stuntmen are the perfect solution to his faults. One afternoon, while filming a scene for the television program, actor McGrew finds himself misplaced in time, transported to the real Wild West, where here men roll their own cigarettes, pour alcohol into shot glasses, not from smashed bottles, and disputes are settled quickly with a six gun in the street. In a meeting of the minds, the real Jesse James explains to McGrew that the cowboys in heaven upset with the false image his show gives are upset with the false image his show gives to television viewers. In a showdown in the streets, Jesse challenges McGrew to draw and injecting a sense of fear, tells the actor to make the television program more realistic or else. Back on the set, McGrew meets Jesse James, who now serves as his agent, and changes are made to the scripts, even if McGrew is going to be thrown through the windows without the use of stuntmen. So, starring as Rance McGrew is Larry Blyden. This is his second of two Twilight Zone appearances. He first appeared as Rocky Valentine in season one's A Nice Place to Visit, which I really need to go back and rewatch that because... Man, that is a that is a that is a crazy different role than Rance McGrew. Uh, so I think he has quite a bit of range here in his two appearances in the Twilight Zone. And co-starring as Jesse James is Arch Johnson. This is his third of three Twilight Zone appearances. He made two uncredited appearances in Lost. Uh, I'm sorry, in Long Distance Call and Static, both in season two. And then, uh, let's see, and then also in the cast, oh, okay, that's why, okay, so also in the cast as the director, Cy, is Robert Cornthwaite, uh, this is his first of two Twilight Zone appearances, next we'll see from him is season four's No Time Like the Past, and he has a few notable credits, or a couple notable credits, um, that's relevant to our interest here on Anthology. Uh, he appeared in The Thing from Another World from 1951 and The War of the Worlds from 1953. And then rounding out the cast is Robert J. Stevenson as the bartender. This is his second of two Twilight Zone appearances. He uh, had an uncredited role as the radio announcer in The Midnight Sun, and he also appeared uh, in an uncredited role um, in The Thing from Another World from 1951. And he appeared in one episode 
episode of One Step Beyond. And writer for this episode was uh, Rod Serling, based on an original story idea by Frederick L. Fox. And that's kind of confusing because I couldn't necessarily find much information about the story idea, but I think that there was an issue where uh, there was a there was a claim of plagiarism, and I think that the the way that this was settled. Um, was that they gave they gave Frederick L. Fox a, an original story idea credit? I think I think I'll need to really dig deeper and maybe I'll I'll mention it in the next episode. But but yeah, that's my understanding from what uh, from what scant information I could find online. And director for this episode, making his first directorial effort in the Twilight Zone, is Christian Nyby. This, again, is his first of two Twilight Zones. Next we'll see is later this season, he does uh, Cavender is Coming. And uh, some notable directing credits include, well, I only have one, um, his, his directorial debut, which was The Thing from Another World from 1951. So that's pretty neat. And then... Uh, also, a piece of trivia about him is that he was also an accomplished editor before he started directing. Um, some notable um, credits that he had that he had as an as an editor was 1944's "To Have and Have Not" and 1946's "The Big Sleep," both of those being uh, being movies that starred uh, Bogey and Bacall. And then he also edited in 1948 the movie Red River, which he got nominated for a Best Editing Oscar for that. So that's neat. And then finally, the final piece of trivia for Christian Nyby is that the station, the Arctic station in the Twilight Zone revival on Paramount Plus slash CBS All Access, uh, that episode, uh, the episode eight, the title episode, <laughs> uh, season two, the episode title is eight, uh, was named, uh, the station that, that takes place in was named Nyby Station, which was named uh, after Christian, Christian Nyby. So, uh, yeah, so those are, that's the talent rundown for Showdown with Ransom McGrew, and before I get into my actual thoughts as a viewer on this episode and my actual review, I just want to kind of give a rundown of uh, what I had expected or what I knew about the episode before watching it for the first time. So, uh, before I watched this episode, I knew that the titular character of Ransom McGrew was an actor that was working on a Western. And I had assumed that the story would deal with him becoming the character that he's playing. Um, and I thought that he would be going into going into the show kind of similar to like Last Action Hero. Um, and then I thought then I thought if that is the case, I'd be curious how the episode would differentiate itself from um, a world of difference from season one. And then I also imagined uh, something similar to Mr. Denton on Doomsday Um Although not really, like what I what I imagined um, in comparison to Mr. Do Mr. Denton on Doomsday is that I thought I was thinking about um, the original premise for Mr. Denton on Doomsday, the school teacher who goes back to the Old West to be because he dreams of being um, a gun, uh, a, a, a gunslinger. So I kind of thought of that. I thought maybe this would be a repurpose of that. Um yeah. So I don't know. Um, so those were kind of my random, uh, scattered thoughts on what I thought, uh, showdown with Ransom McGrew would be. And I was pretty much, I was pretty much wrong. So <laughs> let's get into my review of showdown with Ransom McGraw. So the episode opens with this old West town. It's very like that kind of imagery of this 
of this kind of like settled town. I I don't know exactly how to describe it, but it really makes me think of like Red Dead Redemption and Tombstone and like basically any iconic um, Western set piece of media has this type of layout, like a kind of like storefronts kind of lining each side of the street and a dirt road in the middle. It just, it feels like so much like a Western setting. And it looked very nice and shiny in this and very well kept, obviously. Um, and so we see two men come out of the saloon and they start talking and they say, uh, they're saying in like these kind of Western slangy kind of draws, uh, like old West draws saying like, oh, he's late again. You know, he's going to get shot today. And I think I hear him coming up and everything. And, um, I really like that the dialogue that they're saying as, as brief as it is, is it can have, it can serve a double, a double meaning, uh, double meaning, even triple meaning, I guess. So the dialogue itself can be, can be these two, these two characters in a show talking about an, like a person in the old West that is coming to, coming to face judgment or face some kind of, uh, like shootout and everything like that. It sounds authentic to the tone of, the Rance McGrew show that they're shooting. But then the actual dialogue can serve as these two actors on a set waiting for the star of the show to show up and uh, kind of complaining about the fact that he that he isn't there yet. <laughs> um, so those those two kind of reads of it is I think that that's really clever in terms of the screenwriting here. And the kind of subtext of that, though, is And I don't know how intentional this is, but that kind of Old West drawl that they do, I feel like that is such a nice touch because to me, and and again, this might just be something that I'm putting into the show that's not necessarily there, but to me, that signifies that these two actors that are waiting for Rance to get there, like, obviously, they're not shooting a scene. It's not, it's not, you know, um, it's not a take or anything. They're in between scenes. But these two actors are talking in a way that makes it sound like they're in the Old West. And it kind of feels like they they are doing that kind of, I don't want to say method acting, but I, it kind of feels like they're they're speaking because they are more inhabiting the roles that they're playing in the show than anything else. And I really like that as this very subtle kind of introduction to the show and showing that these performers are like every performer other than Rance McGrew is more authentically in character than Rance could ever be. And I just really like that as the, just a very subtle, very subtle hint at this, at the top of the episode. And so as they're talking, I'm sitting there thinking for the first time, like, it's kind of a shame that I know that it's a movie or TV show because this very much feels like a, like it feels like that old West thing. And then (laughs) as immediately when I had that, had that thought, that's when Rance pulls up in the car and I'm like, okay, I mean that it's not that much of a shame because it's like almost instantaneous that I had that thought. And then, uh, the reveal happened. So I was thankful that the show wasn't dragging out the, um, dragging out the kind of the, the mystery of it and everything. And plus, I'm really glad that they didn't do that because they already did that in a world of difference. Like a world of difference opens in that very extended, very cool sequence and everything. And to retread that for this in an old West setting would, would have been a little bit 
it, it wouldn't it wouldn't have been effective. So I'm really glad that they didn't do that. And I did notice this, and I don't want to nitpick or anything, but um, I do kind of like that when you hear the car and then you see it coming up, you can see the tire tracks from like presumably from previous takes of them doing that, which I thought was interesting. Um, and here's the thing that, and here's something that I, I'm not going to say I struggled with it or anything, but I'm kind of confused as, as to why, why have the two, uh, two close-ups of the horse, like neighing very aggressively. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's to, maybe that's to lean into the comedic, side of the story because this is very much a comedy episode of the twilight zone but i don't know just having that at the beginning and end seems a little bit like it doesn't really uh it doesn't it doesn't distract from me or anything but i don't really see the point of it um so anyway so rance pulls up he jumps out of the car uh the director comes out and scolds him saying he's an hour and 15 minutes late and then rance is kind of just off the cuff um uh, reaction or explanation is like, oh, you know, it's, you know, I hate, I hate, uh, I have trouble with these, these damned emotional scenes and everything. And, uh, then he runs in and I, like that, I kind of, I think that that's funny because he references the emotional scenes a few times or a couple of times in the episode. And, um, I find it really funny how this is an emotional scene for him because it's simply him taking, talking up, what he's going to do to Jesse James when he arrives. Like that's the scene that they're about to shoot is him talking to these guys at the bar saying that he's just going to maim Jesse James. And I like that that in his perspective, in his eyes is an emotional scene because it's not him doing like crazy, like fighting, like over, like, like defeating and killing these bad guys of the old West and everything. It's just him talking like it's him doing a scene for a show. Um, so that very much indicates to me that he is very much a bit of a diva, um, and that he's, you know, just very ill-equipped for, uh, the work that he is, you know, hired to do on the show. And, to kind of further that diva aspect, uh, the director kind of comes up to him as he's getting in the makeup chair and he says, um, he says like, okay, this is what, this is the scene we're working on. It's scene 71. You come in, you look to the left and the right, and then you go up to the bar and get your drink. And again, very emotional scene. Um, and then Rance, uh, says like, he, I really like the way that, uh, that the actor, the, that the actor reads this, but he says something to the effect of, no, no, cowboys don't, cowboys don't look left and right. Do you think my head's on a swivel? No, they go in, they look straight ahead. They go straight to the bar. They look at their drink and they look right at that. And, (laughs) and I just like that he purports to know about the old West and about that time era and everything. But what immediately comes into focus throughout the whole episode is that he is just concerned with his personal, his personal, like, uh, embodiment of the role. Like he's, he, his, what he looks like on the outside and everything. And that's not really like the point of the episode It's not a point of vanity or anything, but it is a part of his character. And I find that to be really entertaining in this episode. And also at this point, 
I was really confused. And I was confused for, for a considerable amount of my first viewing of this because the character's name is Ransom McGrew and the actor's name is Ransom McGrew. And they address this in the scene, in the showdown scene at the end of the episode. But then also, I feel like the actor that's playing Jesse James, uh, like in the actual show, um, like in, in Ransom McGrew's show, they refer to him as Jesse. So I didn't know if like he was in character as Jesse or if he was like another case. I, I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, so that was kind of confusing as I was trying to get what, um, what the episode was going for basically, but it cleared itself up and subsequent viewings were fine with me. So anyway, now that Rance is ready to go after he's popped some pills for his upset stomach because of these damn emotional scenes where he has to look left and right, um, <laughs> the director uh, pleads with him that that we can uh, start. And then he, uh, what I found interesting right before the opening narration is that he says, all right, can we get, can we guy like addressing, addressing the crew and the whole production saying like, all right, we're, let's go. The stars here, we're way behind. Let's get this right and everything. And it's like, he's speaking. It's like, he's kind of, um, not scolding, but he's, he's being kind of a hard ass to the whole production. And I find that to be interesting because that is a case of a guy of, of, of a, of a boss who is taking the, like annoyance or aggression of one per one person on the production and applying it to everything. Like it's just that kind of, um, I don't know. It just, it, it almost seems like the kind of like, uh, uh, like the shit rolls downhill kind of, kind of adage of management and everything in which also kind of implies that Rance McGrew is on is, is kind of like, you know, the big shot of the whole thing which is, is kind of a running thing throughout it. Like when he, uh, says that about, uh, his head on a swivel and everything, the director just says like, all right, yeah, we'll do it. However you want to do it. That's fine. Like, can we just go? Um, so I, I don't know. I just kind of like the, the kind of power dynamic as, as lightly as it's shown in this episode, uh, the way it's shown is, is pretty interesting. So as they are about to shoot the entrance of Rance McGrew into the bar, we get Rod Serling's opening narration, which I'm going to play right now. Star is here. Some 100 odd years ago, a motley collection of tough mustaches galloped across the West and left behind a raft of legends and ledger domains. And it seems a reasonable conjecture that if there are any television sets up in cowboy heaven, and any one of these rough and woolly nail eaters could see with what careless abandon their names and exploits are being bandied about, they're very likely turning over in their graves, or worse, getting out of them. Which gives you a clue as to the proceedings that'll begin in just a moment, when one Mr. Rance McGrew, a 3,000 buck a week phony baloney, discovers that this week's current edition of Make Believe is being shot on location. And that location is the Twilight Zone. So first of all, again, I just love the wording of this, um, of this opening narration. Uh, when Serling says, uh, that, uh, I don't know. I just love the expression of the, of people of the old West being a motley collection of tough mustaches. I just think that that's incredibly colorful and detailed and, and descriptive. I love that. And then also he uses a word that I've actually never heard. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, left behind a raft of legends and ledger domains. 
which I don't know what Ledger Domains is, but it sounds really good. So I was really, I was really impressed with the opening narration here. But really, what, like the first time I uh, saw the narration in this, the opening narration, my immediate thought was, okay, so this is interesting because I felt like it was going to be about myth versus reality sort of thing. And it's demonstrating that Rance is a privileged actor who's not taken seriously at all. Like even Serling says that he's a thirty, uh, uh, sorry, a three thousand buck a week phony baloney. And I, I love, I, I love that so much. Um, and so in my kind of estimation, I figured that whatever the experience is going to be for Rance McGrew in this episode, it's going to give him some very much needed perspective and maybe bring his ego down a bit. Um, and that made me think that maybe it would be kind of like the inverse of a world of difference where it's a person learning from the character that they are. Although a world of difference is more about a guy who just thinks that he's the character, um, which I kind of feel like was also on my mind here for Rance McGrew. I thought like, okay, maybe he is being and it kind of is sort of like this like he thinks he is Rance McGrew to an extent but not nearly to a world of difference level so I don't know um I there were a lot of thoughts in my head I'll say that so uh we come back from the opening narration and Rance is getting the gun from the prop department and he starts twirling it around his finger and doing like these little trick things and I really really like uh, so I really like how everyone on set just takes cover and I love how that's called back later in the episode. I'll point it out, but I really love that kind of that display and that ongoing display of people on set, not taking Rance McGrew seriously at all. He is the star of a show of which that we later find out he won two Emmys for, or he was nominated for two Emmys for, um, and he is the star of the show, and it is a multiple season show, so it's has some kind of modicum of success and everything, but no one on set respects him, and no one takes him seriously, and I really, really like that. Um, I really like that as a running gag throughout it, especially for a comedy uh, episode of The Twilight Zone, but I also think that it shows how little respect he has for the era and the persona that he as an actor is paid to inhabit and imitate. And I just, I really, I really think that that's an interesting kind of angle for the personality of Rance McGrew and how he is, how his whole perspective is that he thinks he's an authority because he plays an authority on the show but he knows literally nothing and he is very cowardly in, in his interactions with the real Jesse James later. And I just find that to be a really good mix for the comedy of the episode. Um, so once he swirls the gun or twirls the gun and he breaks the mirror, uh, the, the director slips some money to like the producer or whoever else was there um, <laughs> and says like, well, you win. Here you go. Uh, just further showing that that members of the crew do not respect Rance McGrew uh, one bit. So and then and so like we get that and I really like the way that this is structured because we get that kind of explanation or we get that kind of uh 
that di- that display of of them paying off the bet and everything. Um, I think we also get get the guy kind of up in the in the in the uh, the rafter or whatever reading the newspaper, which I thought for a while that was supposed to be Jesse James watching. Um, but it's not, I don't, I'm like 99 to 100% sure that it's not. But anyway, um, I figured maybe it was like the DP or something. I don't know. But anyway, not important. So what I love is that we get that display throughout these few scenes at the beginning of the episode, including Serling's narration. We get it very much demonstrated to us that Rance McGrew is not respected on set. He is not a respected person because he is not of a caliber of talent or respect um, to to garner respect or anything. Um and then we see firsthand why that is because <laughs> the director, uh, he shouts action for the scene and Rance enters, he enters into the saloon and his R's, his R's, his eyes dart left and right and just immediately, immediately. And I think that this is very much a, a, a very good, uh, feather in the cap of Larry Blyden, but immediately we know like, oh, this actor is not comfortable in his own skin. He is not the person that he is, pers- uh, that he is personifying in this scene. And he has no idea how to play this tough guy character. <laughs> and there are just these little subtle moments that he gives this, uh, that he gives to his physical performance in this scene in particular, that is just golden to me. Um, like I said, when he when he darts his eyes left and right and then he walks up, it's just it's very clear that he's uncomfortable. And then when the bartender slides slides the bottle to him and he just he he doesn't even Rance doesn't even make an attempt to get it. And that shows that he's like very uncomfortable and he's not confident in his role. Um but then he also just immediately like takes offense to it saying that the bartender uh put english on it and made it curve and everything and then like the bartender's like just scoffs at him like no no i didn't and from my perspective my read of that is that he did not like that was not like anyone could have just grabbed the bottle if they had timed it right um it's just rance is just kind of a buffoon really um, so I just really like that, that kind of interaction and it further demonstrates that Rance is just not respected on the set or on the production in that it also further demonstrates that Rance again is this diva persona who doesn't know how to take responsibility for his ineptitude. Um, and that he also just doesn't show respect for the work or his coworkers. Um, so it's just right from the outset, we have a very good detail of the character of Rance McGrew, the actor. And I really appreciate, uh, the, the way that the episode kind of plays that out. And, uh, yeah. So again, I didn't know what the guy in the rafter reading the paper was all about. I, I still, I really couldn't tell if it was Jesse James or not. If it had been, I really liked the imagery of him looking down on Rance. But again, I'm like 99% sure that that wasn't the case. He was just a person on set, uh, which is true. Yeah. Cause he disappears when it changes over to the old West. So anyway, um, so, uh, take two <laughs> on the scene, uh, the bartender slides the bottle to him and rants very like, this is good physical comedy. Um, he struggles to catch it. Basically it's very animated. It's very, uh, just big. 
And he then takes it in this, again, buffoonish show of um, machismo, I guess, or showing kind of this um, level of, um, uh, I don't know, uh, bravada or intimidation, masculinity, all that stuff. He takes it and he breaks the bottle on the bar and I really like that because no one in their right mind would show that as a show of of uh, dominance or anything. Like it doesn't seem like it is very much uh, overcompensating. And I feel like that the intention of that is that Rance, the actor, probably pushed for that kind of thing. So he breaks the bottle and then he spits out some gl- pieces of glass and then he takes a drink and then he talks to the two men at the bar. And I, I just want to say, just as a small anecdote, this is really this is really dumb of me. <laughs> this has nothing to do with anything, but this scene reminded me that when I was in high school and I went to a party, uh, <laughs> uh, there was, uh, I, I drank in high school and uh, there was, like, it was my first time uh, with a bottle of beer that did not have a twist top. It had a like bottle opener thing and i used like they like the house i was at that we used like a post that was in the ground to to open the bottles and i did but the top of the the top of the uh bottle just kind of shattered a little bit <laughs> and uh i cleaned it up and i was like yeah it should be fine so i took i drank it and i cut my lips anyway i'm yeah that was me in high school but anyway so uh so I wondered for a while um, until it became clear that this was intentional in the scene, that this was a scene of the show that he was shooting. But I wondered for a while if it was improv or if it was in the scene. Because I thought for a second, I thought, okay, the actor Rance McGrew is ruining this take to spite the bartender because he he uh, he couldn't catch the bottle the first time. That's not the case, but I do think that that is indicative of the strength of Larry Blyden's performance, because it's really, it's really hard to, uh, it's really, I, I would assume it's really hard to, to act like a bad actor to, to show that he, for comedic effect. And he does it really well in this. Um, it's really, really, uh, really good. Um, and so the scene further goes on to demonstrate that he is, that there's this interesting layer between Rance the man and Rance the character. Rance the character is a is an intimidating marshal, and Rance the man is a diva on set. <laughs> and uh, that's when we get the first hint that it's you know it has Jesse James at the center, and um he says that he's he's waiting for Jesse James, and the dialogue here is pretty goofy. Um, the back and forth between the men at the bar and Rance McGrew, uh, he says, I know, you know, I, you know, I know, you know, that I know you're like, I, or that, you know, that I'm looking for Jesse James. And then the guys are like, yeah, we heard tell of that. And then he says, well, what you might not know is that, you know, I know, you know, you know, I know that, you know, that you might know Jesse James. Like it's, it's very quick and confusing. (laughs) And I think that the reason why 
I would I would say that the dialogue comes across as goofy because the performance is intentionally goofy. And I think that's really interesting that it's showing how the work can suffer if the actor is not of a high enough caliber, like in the, in the world of the show, I'm not, I'm not, I'm kind of crediting, uh, Larry Blyden's performance, uh, in a backwards way. So, um, then we get more demonstration of Rance being an intimidating guy in the show because the bartender begs him not to kill Jesse in the bar. And then (laughs) again, Rance McGrew, he does this whole, like, like, oh, I'm not going to kill him. I'm just going to maim him a bit and maybe take off his pinky. And it's just so clear how how unnatural this dialogue is coming out of this man's mouth. And I really like that. And then to further, to further kind of foment that, that disconnect between uh, the persona of Rance McGrew, the character, and the actor portraying Rance McGrew, um, or the actor who is Rance McGrew in the show, Jesse James in the show enters the scene and it's interesting because he is immediately noticeable that he's immediately of a shorter stature than, than Rance McGrew intentionally cast that way. And then, uh, as soon as he walks in, he looks to the left and right when he enters. And the difference is that it looks completely natural when he does it. It looks cause he, cause he is acting, he's doing a good job. Whereas when Rance entered and his eyes fluttered to the left and right, it looks so unnatural. And I really like that. Um, so they have their little showdown in the bar. They do this very like, just, just unnatural kind of like look where they're like going to going to draw, uh, kind of building themselves up with their arms, uh, their hands near their, near their guns. It's very animated and everything. Um, and then we get the scene where, you know, he shoots him kind of, kind of reminiscent of Mr. Denton on doomsday, uh, obviously, um, from season one, but, um, Rance then breaks the mirror again. <laughs> um, and I, I don't know. I just, I, I really like that as just, this is just the introduction of us, having like the introduction of Ransom McGrew as a character and of the show that he's shooting. But anyway, speaking of the show that he's shooting, I don't think that this is intentional at all. I don't think that this is the intent of the, of the text of the show, but in my head, I like to imagine that the title of the show that they're shooting, the, the Ransom McGrew show that they're shooting in the episode is actually titled showdown with Ransom McGrew. Um, like that's my personal headcanon for that. I really like, I think that that would be, I I think that that would fit really well. So then after that, we get this montage of the bar fight scene being shot where every single time Rance is about to be hit or about to do something, he calls for the stunt man. Um, and I initially thought that this was just him being a victim of vanity, but I just, I, I think it's more that he's it's more showing us further that he's nowhere near the intimidating figure that he's playing. And I, and I'm going to talk about this later, but I love, love, love the way that that's called back at the end of the episode. So, uh, yeah. So anyway, um, (laughs) they cut and he, uh, sniffs. Oh, oh, during that montage, I think, I think the director gives, gives some money to the, the guy again, because he, uh, because, because again, it's either because the 
the mirror broke again or because he called for a stuntman. I don't know. It just further shows that Rance McGrew is not someone who commands respect on the set. So anyway, um, after they've completed shooting and everything, uh, he sniffs from the prop whiskey and is just appalled that it's cola and not ginger ale. <laughs> Which again, Diva Rance McGrew is really fun. Um, and the, the bartender says that it needs to be cola in order to look like whiskey. And then Rance looks to the director and says like, Hey, you got to straighten this guy out or fire him. And again, that just shows this like inflated ego and power trip that he has on the set. And the director kind of just sighs and, and like kind of rolls his eyes and says that Rance needs ginger ale. Um, so I just, I like the, again, that power dynamic in the episode. So then this I thought was really, really interesting. Um, so the next scene, they are setting it up to where they're going to do the kill scene where, uh, the director instructs the actors that Jesse is on the ground and grabs a gun to shoot Rance in the back. And that's when the actor who plays Jesse James pops up and he's like, wait, no, no, no. That's, I've did a lot of reading on this guy. He fought fair. Like he's not, he's not going to shoot someone in the back. Um, and then Rance just like cuts him down entirely. He's like, oh yeah, that's real smart. Or cause, cause, um, uh, because the actor says that, yeah, maybe he should yell instead. And Rance is like, yeah, that's real smart. You know, uh, yell, yell at the fastest gun in the West that he's about to be shot in the back. Like, okay. Um, and I just, I love that just false, that, that sense of superiority he has that's completely unearned because he sees himself as the fastest in the West. He sees himself as this bravado guy, but he cannot walk the walk at all. And, uh, just there. And then there is just this sublime line afterwards where, uh, the actor playing Jesse James is like talking to the director kind of quietly. He's like, I just, he would not do this. Jesse James would not do this. And then He's, he says, uh, Jesse James wouldn't shoot someone in the back. And then the director just kind of very pointedly says to him, yeah, well, Rance McGrew would (laughs) kind of intoning to him, like, you know, don't ruffle any feathers because, you know, he's going to stab you in the back if, uh, and get you fired. Um, and I just, I love that kind of that, that toxic work environment really (laughs) is what it is. Um, so before we get into the introduction of Jesse James, uh, the real Jesse James, I do want to say that this episode as a whole kind of feels a little bit similar to a certain degree to a game of pool. I mean, it's about a dead person coming back to challenge someone alive. Um, but instead of pool and talent, it's to coach them and alter a performance of, of theirs. So it's a loose connection, but I kind of feel like it's a little bit similar there. Um, but anyway, so the director says action and everything freezes and starts changing. And so here we get the Twilight Zone moment and everyone disappears from the set and Rance finds himself in a real saloon in a, in the real uh, Wild West. And he starts to take a drink from the cup and just the immediate reaction. Again, Larry Blyden did a very good job in this episode. Um, he he yet yeah, like he's like his throat is all whiskeyed out because he's like, this is real whiskey. Like, what are you an idiot? Um, and I just really like that. That's when he looks around and sees that the fourth wall is a real wall and saloon music is playing. And he realizes that 
you know, something is amiss. And uh, a man comes in and says that Jesse James is coming. He's looking for Rance. And <laughs> I love because Rance, he does not. He is very slow on the uptake of what's happening. He says, like, we already did that scene. It was scene 71. <laughs> and um, so then he goes to the door to call his agent. That's when the real Jesse James enters. Very much an imposing figure. Very much intimidating more intimidating looking than uh than the actor playing him on the show and he kind of walks into the bar and causes rance to walk backwards and i love i love the dialogue between them where he's just like where uh where rance keeps saying like cut cuts for pete's sake can we just cut and then the show cuts to a commercial break (laughs) i thought that was really solid that was really clever i really liked that so when we come back from the commercial break, uh, Jesse James says that he's looking for Marsh- Marshall Rance McGrew. And uh, <laughs> I love this. Rance's response is uh, he makes no eye contact. He has his hat pulled down. He's sitting at a at a table and he just he makes no eye contact with him. He says that away. Um, <laughs> and then he immediately when Jesse James grabs his vest and shows the marshal uh badge he says where's the fellow loaned me this vest so he's very much trying to weasel out of it which is something he's doing he tries to do throughout the rest of the episode and i just i really really like the comedic timing of that and something else that i really enjoy about this episode which is this is really interesting because all told i'll spoil the the end of this review i thought this was an okay episode overall but as is usually the case i'm getting a lot of enjoyment out of talking about it and everything so while it's not going to be like one of my top tier favorite twilight zone episodes i do appreciate a lot of the things that went into making this episode um what it is and one of the things that i like about it the the thing the one of the smartest things about this episode is that it very much makes it clear in that first act what the differences are between Rance McGrew the character versus Van, Rance wow versus Rance McGrew the actor um it makes that so clear in that first act as i went through the at the first part of this review but what I think is really clever and very smartly done is that it's not a one-to-one comparison and it's wisely not a show within a show in the first act. Like the first act of the show could have easily been an extended sequence similar to the opening of um, A World of Difference where we see Rance McGrew in the Old West. We we could have been introduced to the legend of Rance McGrew throughout that whole sequence and then have it be revealed that he's an actor on a set and then bring him back in time to interact with the real Jesse James. That would have been solid. Like that would have been effective in, in in its own right. But instead we, we get so much more detail about the actor of Rance McGrew and the character of Rance McGrew through the way that he's written in this episode in the first act, because we not only see his onset behavior, but we see how, like we see, we see, we get a sense of the character's persona. We get a sense of the actor's quirks and we get the whole production's view of the actor as a, as a person. So we get all of this detail. Whereas if they had done like a straight, a straight, uh, more straight laced, like show within a show kind of 
thing, we would have not had hardly any of that detail. So I just think that that the structure of that first act is really, really something special. So, uh, so yeah, so back to this act, um, <laughs> Jesse is speaking to Rance about Rance's reputation and says that he's, he looks more like a marshmallow, uh, and the way that our, is it Arch Johnson, I think is his name, um, who bears a striking familiarity to me, um, to, um, Stacy Keach. Yeah. Arch Johnson. So when he, like, I love the kind of fun that he puts on, uh, on the role of Jesse James here. Um, he, he calls him a marshmallow and he's kind of like, he's having fun with him. He's, he's very much having fun with him. Like when, uh, when, when he talks about the different exploits that, that Rance McGrew has gone on on the show and Rance is saying like, yeah, it's, you know, I won an, uh, I got nominated for an Emmy on that one. And then Jesse's just like, gleefully like laughing like i bet you did i bet you did i bet people loved you there um and then he laughs in his face it's just it's a lot of it's a lot of fun it's a lot of fun so anyway uh jesse says that they'll have a drink and then have a showdown and we get this fun like bit of comedic kind of comparison between the two men um so Rance catches the bottle and then tries to break it to be intimidating. But since it's not a prop, <laughs> the entire bottle just shatters. And it's just, it's a lot of fun. It, that Like the reversal of that, the kind of callbacks to that first act is, is really fun in this scene. And then, uh, and then Jesse's kind of goading him to do these things. He, he throws him the, the tobacco and Rance tries to roll a cigarette and can't get it working while Jesse shows that he's just a pro at it. Um, and throughout this whole sequence, Jesse is trying to, keeps trying to get under his skin. And he says like, you're the most even tempered, uh, person I've ever met or dude I've ever met. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just, I really like the juxtaposition of the two men in this scene. And also Jesse says that it's, it's time for them to come to a meeting of the minds and immediately everyone in the bar hides because they know that Jesse means business. They know the legacy of Jesse James. And I feel like that's such a nice reversal of everyone on set hiding because they know the legacy of Rance McGrew and know that he is about to break a mirror because of his incompetence. Like, I just love the dichotomy of that, that this episode strikes between Jesse James and Rance McGrew. Um, and then just the comedic beat after that, where, uh, again, Jesse's trying to get under Rance's skin and he says, why do you suppose they're all taking cover Marshall? And, <laughs> and Rance's response is closing time. Yeah, it's closing time. Yep. Curfew. Gotta go. Um, and then he tries to leave and I don't know. I just, I love that. And then this is where we get the, uh, the lines about the different exploits of Rance McGrew. Um, and at this point, I kind of wondered if it was be, and, and I'm going to preface this facetiously by saying that since I'm a white liberal millennial, uh, and everything in 2022, I, um, uh, when Jesse asks if Rance has ever hit someone or shot someone or ridden a horse or been hit in anger, um, I thought like, oh, I wonder if this is about toxic masculinity or imposter syndrome. And, uh, it's really not, it's about, it's, it's kind of about pretending to be who you're not or not, not showing respect for like what came before you, which I don't know. I'll talk about that. So basically 
Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll skip over to that because uh, this is where I have like my biggest hang up with this episode because it's kind of presenting this scenario where Jesse James in heaven with a bunch of other outlaws, like they had this council where they appointed Jesse to come down to earth to, to kind of instruct Rance and to let him know that he's hurting their feelings and that he needs to be more honest in his work because they're, he's ruining their legacy. Now it's sort of, it's sort of similar to a game of pool in that, in that stance and to a certain extent, but I don't know if it sits quite right with me because there's this idea and I don't know, I don't know enough about like Jesse James or Billy the kid or uh, Sam star or any of the other people that are referenced, but this idea of romanticizing outlaws of the old West and kind of, you know, ruthless killers feels kind of like wonky to me. Um, and again, to be fair, I don't know enough about Jesse James or Billy the kid or any of the others, but I just have trouble seeing outlaw gangsters as authority figures worthy of being revered. And maybe there's a kind of Robin Hood element to to their legends and everything. But I don't know. It just it just kind of feels like a little bit a little bit weird. Like, oh, OK, Jesse James is going to come down and bully this man. <laughs> and and uh, he's now going to be thrown through windows and stuff. I don't know. It just seems like it doesn't really fit completely with my perspective on like the old West and the characters that it's imitating. So I don't know that that's probably a personal thing on me. I'll have to do more research and everything. So I don't know, it just kind of seems a little bit, a little bit weird. So, uh, I do like the overall concept of the ghosts of outlaws appointing one to come down and straighten rants out. I think that that's pretty fun. Uh, so I'll say that much, but uh, he, so he says like, yeah, we're going to have a showdown right now. And he kind of pushes him out to out into the, uh, the town square. I, there's should, I think there's probably a word for that specific type of town, uh, layout in the old West, but I don't know what it is, but, um, Jesse says that he's going to lose right now. They're going to have a shootout. Um, and I love that Rance's response is that's been, that, that's, that's been done. Haven't you seen gunfight at Red Rock? Um, which I Googled it and I don't think that's like a real thing. I think it's just a, a fake thing in the show. Um, and then, <laughs> and then uh, all, all Jesse says is lousy and Rance just quietly says like, Oh, you didn't like that one. Okay. Um, so, uh, and then, okay. So at this point before the showdown, I was kind of confused because again, that first viewing, I was a little bit confused as much as I really like the structure of this episode and a lot of the elements of it. I was still this late in the episode, still very confused as to whether or not Jesse James was coming from the perspective of a viewer of the show, or if Rance was an actual person in the world. Like, I don't know. I didn't know at this point if Rance McGrew was also like a person in the old West, like an actual, like historical person. And Jesse James was coming down to correct the legacy of it or, or what have you. And I also didn't know at that point, And I think that that's mostly just my issues as a viewer on it, but I didn't know at that point if, um, Jesse James was what had seen the show. 
like if he was coming down as a viewer of the show, which is the case. That is what happened. But I found myself thinking, like, how does he know what an Emmy is? <laughs> like, what? Like, why does he know like this and that and everything? So it just kind of got a little bit confusing to me there. But it obviously works perfectly well on repeat viewings and everything once I know everything. Um, so they get set up for the showdown. Rance runs away <laughs> very cowardly. And then there's this really cool overhead shot of Jesse James in the town that I think is spectacularly framed. Um, it's this crane shot from this interesting angle, not quite Dutch angle, but it's it's at an angle where Jesse is near the uh, bottom left corner of the frame and he's moving inward in frame. So it's kind of like going basically up and to the right, basically at a diagonal. And we see because, because the, um, because the frame completely to the right of Jesse is of this just barren town, old West town we see like it shows the wide open distance in front of Jesse and <laughs> the emptiness of it. And with the notable absence of Rance, um, because it just really adds, it just really adds to the intimidation factor of Jesse James and the cowardice of Rance McGrew when he's faced with what his character does week to week, uh, without, without any effort. Um, and so I just love the, I love Jesse, doing like, uh, like goading rants to come out and everything. And he finally does. And Jesse says, I'm going to count to five and then we're going to fire. And this was also a little bit confusing because it was like rants is still thinking that it's the show. And I think that in my head, I still was thinking that it was rants going back in time rather than, uh, Jesse James coming down, which is also kind of confusing, uh, for the most part, because, with all due respect to Martin Graham's Jr. in the in unlocking the door to a television classic, um, invaluable resource for this podcast. Like it is, it is incredible. But he says in the plot summary that Rance McGrew goes back in time to the old west. But I find that to be kind of confusing because I don't know the the kind of purpose of the plot is that it needs to have. Rance McGrew in a setting where he can be killed by Jesse James. Like he needs that. He needs the stakes to be that he needs the stakes to know that he is, that he is in mortal danger of losing his life to Jesse James. So on the surface, yeah, just put him back in time and everything. But the whole premise is that Jesse James as a spirit from the afterlife is coming down to correct Rance McGrew into to set the record straight and to not let him tarnish his legacy and the legacy of his friends. So by transporting him back in time, he then also has to transport himself into the world. So it's just kind of confusing because it, it, because, because it's, it's setting up that he's back in time so that the, the threat is real, but like, why not just make, I mean, I get, he needs to have a uh, plausible deniability when he comes back and everything uh, out of the twilight zone. So it's just kind of confusing because there's a couple of moving pieces there that don't really fit quite that well together. And that kind of makes me a little bit confused or, or not confused, but it made me a little bit discombobulated with 
this scene during the countdown because Rance is saying that uh, he only did the show for the residuals. Um, and he says that one of the stipulations was that the character uh, got to be named after him. And then he starts pleading with him, saying that he has an elderly mother and millions of fans. Many of them are elderly, too. And so he says, you're killing an American institution, uh, which, again, is another like thing of vanity and a thing of like I'm more important than anything sort of sort of thing. So I don't know, just the buildup of that felt a little bit, it was entertaining and everything, but it felt a little like, no, it was good. I'll, I'll, I won't have any criticism of that. It was good because the next line I cackled. I think it is absolutely perfect and great comedy because Jesse approaches him, he yells five and then, <laughs> and then he gets up into Rance's face and <laughs> And Rance just shouts for the stuntman a couple of times. And it's just the, the, the complete like quavering of his voice. He is so like, it is such a belittled kind of thing. Like he is very much, he is like, he is, he is terrified and it is just such a small, small enunciation, uh, but a pleading smallness that I really, I really loved. I really, I really, really liked that. Um, and then, uh, to kind of further that when he's talking to Jesse, when he's pleading with him not to shoot him, begging for his life at gunpoint, he keeps, <laughs> this is really great. That was really funny. Um, he keeps, he keeps nudging the, <laughs> the barrel of the gun away from his face. <laughs> while jesse is pointing it in his face and i i like that that was great that's just that's so perfect um yeah and then even then um jesse asks if rance was really nominated for an emmy for an emmy and uh rance says like yeah too actually so even in the face of possible death he still wants to flaunt his talent and his vanity and everything um, and again, I'm not, I'm not proud of this, but at this point I'm still a little confused. Like, why does Jesse James know what an Emmy is? Uh, cause I did not, I did not pick up what was being put down that he was, uh, I knew that he was a spirit and everything, but it didn't really make much sense to me that they were watching it in heaven or whatever, or even that they were in heaven cause they're outlaws. I don't know what the, I don't know. I need to do more research, but anyway, so the climax kind of concludes with Jesse saying that he's going to stick around and make sure that Rance plays things carefully from now on. And then he says, and I love the way that he says this. He says, we may be stiffs up there, but we're sensitive. And then he disappears. And I thought that was really, that was really nice. Um, and then instantaneously Rance is back on the bar set. Uh, and, and like time has like time has not moved for anyone there. Um, and at that point, I kind of thought, like, was this an excursion in Rance's mind as his insecurities got the better of him? Um, maybe deep down he knew that he was not, you know, performing to the legend that is being preceded uh, or being perceived by audiences of Rance McGrew. But that's not the case. Um, it was a group of outlaws, outlaw spirits uh, tired of their legacies being tarnished. And that's basically it. Uh, but I can, I can respect that and enjoy it in its own right. So that's fine. Um, so the kind of denouement of the episode is that, uh, Rance is told that his agent is outside wanting to speak to him 
And this is another thing. The director says that I don't know what the chain of command is here, but it, will you please just go out there, find out what he needs, find out what I need, find out what you need, find out what we can shoot. And then so we can just get going with this. <laughs> it's very frustrated, but there's that hierarchy kind of coming into play as well. Um, so Jesse, he walks out, Rance walks out and we reveal Jesse dressed in modern clothes, like a Hawaiian shirt. Uh, kind of very Hollywoody, and he says that he's going to stick around uh, to make sure there's no more hurt feelings, which the comedy of that's a lot of fun too. Like when he says that they're sensitive and that he want, doesn't want any more hurt feelings, just like the idea of these outlaws being like very sad about <laughs> their depictions in the shows is a lot of fun. Um, so uh, he explains in this scene, he reiterates what the actor playing Jesse uh said that he wouldn't shoot him in the back, but maybe he gets the better of him and throws Rance out the window. And Rance initially protests out of ego, but then Jesse just kind of like pinches his shoulder to force him to go along with it, which is kind of just weird. Like, I don't know. It's weird. But anyway, Rance is then he goes back in. You hear him say that he that he has an idea and then they yell action and he runs through, he jumps through the window, uh, notably without a stuntman. And that to me shows that he's grown as a character, but I kind of wish that there was a little bit more to the growth of the character in it. Um, but because now he's just basically Jesse James's ghosts lackey and it kind of seems like a little bit. I don't know. It just, it seems a little bit tragic for Rance McGrew as unlikable as a person as he is. It's like, now he is, now he needs to do everything by the book, according to a dead outlaw. So it's kind of weird, but anyway, um, yeah. So then the scene ends with Jesse James, uh, pitching that Billy, the kid next week gets the better of Rance. And then says in a couple more weeks, we'll let Sam Starr get, get, uh, catch a break there. Um, and then we get the closing narration from Rod Serling, which I will play right now. Now, in two weeks, I think we ought to give Sam Starr a break. He's a real nice fella. Awful good to his mother. The evolution of the so-called adult western and the metamorphosis of one Rance McGrew, formerly phony baloney, now upright citizen, with a preoccupation with all things involving tradition, truth, and cowpoke predecessors. It's the way the cookie crumbles and the six-gun shoots in the Twilight Zone. And there you have it, the showdown with showdown with Ransom McGrew. Um, this episode isn't very good, honestly, <laughs> to me. Even though I had a blast kind of with the comedy aspect of it, um, I... I don't know. It feels a little bit hollow to me to have dead, violent outlaw legends wishing to repair their mythos and their legends because their feelings are hurt by a TV show kind of phony tough guy. It, like, I feel like there should have been a little bit more to Rance McGrew's growth as a person in the episode, as opposed to him just being bullied around by Jesse James's ghost. And it just, I don't know. But despite all of that, this is a fun comedic episode. And I think that there's a certain line that needs to be drawn with my criticisms of the show when taking it into account, whether it's a comedic episode or an emotionally driven episode. So I don't know. I enjoyed the episode as much as I could. I really enjoyed the performance of, uh, 
oh, uh, Larry, uh, Larry Blyden. Um, I think he did a phenomenal job and I did like the comedic, the comedic elements of it, but yeah, I don't know. Overall, I think it was, it's, I wouldn't say I'll walk back and say that I, that it, I won't say that it isn't very good. It's just middle of the road for me. So, yeah. Um, so I have a little bit of trivia, um, for this episode, um, as I mentioned in the talent rundown, it, uh, features, uh, the directorial efforts of Christian Nyby, who directed the thing from another world, which has, um, uh, uh, a few cast members, um, that were in the thing from another world in this episode. Um, yeah. And it's interesting because, uh, I'm going to read this from IMDb. Uh, in this episode, Cornwaith, uh, Robert Corn, Cornthwaite, sorry, uh, uh, plays a nervous and frustrated director who has to deal with a vain bumbling cowboy actor on the DVD commentary for this episode. Uh, Cornthwaite states that Nyby told him to play the director character as a funny version of Nyby himself (laughs) and Cornthwaite, uh, praised Nyby's sense of humor. And then, uh, let's see. Oh, also. I didn't catch this the last time I watched it, but, um, in the actual showdown sequence, when Rance McGrew is backing away from Jesse James, there is a sign that for a funeral parlor that comes into view and says that the funeral director is C. Nyby, which is a reference to Christian Nyby, of course. And then, um, in the, uh, trivia section for, um, for this episode in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grimes Jr. Um, apparently, according to Robert Cornthwaite, uh, who played the director, uh, Christian Nyby directed him to place his hand on the extra playing the script supervisor's shoulder in a scene. And I was trying to find the scene. I couldn't find it. Um, it might have been when they grab, they take the gun from her and she kind of like... I think that that's her. I don't know. But anyway, Cornthwaite had been in the business for over a decade and didn't understand the significance of this, nor why he needed to be directed to do that uh, so deliberately in the scene. And what it turns out is that when a principal actor makes physical contact with an extra in a scene, that extra gets a bump in pay because they are more featured in the, in the, in the show. So Nyby was basically his sole reason for directing Cornthwaite to do that was to facilitate a bump in pay for that specific extra, (laughs) which I think is really charming and interesting. Um, and according to Cornthwaite, Christian Nyby was quote, one of the nicest people in the business. So I, I like that. I, I like that anecdote. So those are my thoughts on Showdown with Rance McGrew. Overall, it's 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 a fun episode. It's a fun episode, but I kind of am yearning for something with a little bit more emotional heft, which, spoiler for the show, <laughs> I have already watched next week's episode, Kick the Can, and spoiler for that, but that episode delivers so well. Like that is an incredible episode. So I can't wait to talk about that. But before I go, I'm going to do a bonus review of an episode of science fiction theater. Uh, so yeah, so this will be a non-spoiler review. So stay tuned for that. I'm going to play my jingle here.
right, and this week's episode of Science Fiction Theater is titled The Watermaker. It's season one, episode 27, and it is available on, uh, as of right now, it's available on YouTube as well, but it's also available on dailymotion.com. I have a link in the show notes of this episode. Uh, This episode originally aired on October 29th, 1955, and the synopsis, according to IMDb, is... After the strange the uh, after the strange death of Dr. Dunlap, Dr. Brooks arrives to see if he can complete the research Dunlap was doing into creating water in the desert. Elements of Dunlap's death death don't add up and Brooks wonders if he was a lot closer to success than anyone thought. This episode was directed by Herbert L. Strock and written by Stuart Jerome from a story by Jerry Sackheim and it stars William Tallman uh, Virginia Gray, Craig Stevens, Elmer Vincent, and John Mitchum. Uh, and so, as is usually the case with the structure of the um, of the of the show, um, it begins with a pre-show kind of demonstration by host Truman Bradley, where he kind of shows us a a beaker or a, 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 yeah, a beaker or something uh, containing a mysterious substance. He he says that it is the it is the most dangerous substance in the world, and he kind of does a whole big to do about it. And then he has um, a little cylinder with it, and he puts it on a Bunsen burner, and it causes the container that it's in to explode. And then he keeps referring to the liquid as liquid X, which I thought was really, really cool. Um, so he then takes another another one and emerges it in liquid nitrogen. And then he explains that the liquid expands and then explodes in the container. And then so in this kind of like very fun, um, in, the, in this fun kind of... Uh, what's the word? I, I don't know, like fun fun bit of showmanship. He takes... He takes the the original vial and drinks from it, and then he explains like, "Yes, you might already know this substance is water." Um, so I thought that was really fun. But uh, yeah, so that's the intro, um, and the episode itself is pretty okay. It's um, revolves around this mysterious death of this Dr. Dunlap. There's some interesting stuff with the characters like this guy, David is going to visit Dr. Dunlap because he gets this mysterious telegram from him. And then as he's on his way there, he, he learns that Dr. Dunlap died like a couple of weeks before he even received the telegram. Uh, so he knows that he's being lured there through false pretenses. And what it turns out is that, is that Dunlap's wife, uh, Sheila summoned him with that and knew that he wouldn't come if he knew that it was from her. And that's because David and Sheila have this history. And I did, I kind of liked this. I, I thought that this was an interesting bit of character development as kind of, wrote as it is these days, but, um, I thought it was interesting because it goes in to develop us uh, to develop that Sheila, uh, had originally been with David and then left him to be with Dr. Dunlap and then got married to Dr. Dunlap. And I did as, as, uh, again, uh, liberal millennial in 2020, um, I thought it was funny, um, because this is very much a sign of like 1955, but she's like, yes, I did leave. I did leave you for Dr. Dunlap. And I did, I did leave you because he had a lot more money and stuff. I was like, wow. Okay. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so the kind of central aspect of the episode is that it's a mystery surrounding 
Dr. Dunlap's death. And he, um, like it's purported that he died in the desert when a, when his equipment exploded and killed him. And as David kind of looks into it and, and assesses the research and looks over Dr. Dunlap's work, he finds that it's a little bit more sus- suspicious than that. And he thinks that it's murder um, and everything. And the show does a decent job of setting up one character. Well, no, no, it doesn't really do that decent of a job of doing this, but it does, it does it makes an effort to employ a red herring, but it's very clear like who, like, like who was responsible and everything. Um, and again, I will sing the praises of this show and the way that it's kind of set up and everything, but I really like the way that David goes through the motions of figuring out how to expose the murderer and everything. Um, he does so with science and the scientific method and everything. And I, I really like that. There's also a little bit of action in this. Like it's, it's, it's pretty cool. Like there's um like a chase sequence and it's a lot more, uh, yeah, it's, it's fun. It's fun. It, yeah. The way that he uses the reflective surface to blind someone that's shooting at him. It, it's kind of fun. Um, it reminds me a little bit, and this is so reductive. This is so diminishing of this. This is so, uh, backhanded or whatever, but it reminds me of when I was a kid and I would write like a story about, uh, like me and my, my siblings, like, like the story was about, um, us being chased by like the, the bully or something of school or whatever. And like in the, in the, in the story, he was a bad guy and everything. And, to stop him. We were chasing him or he was chasing us or something. I don't know. But like we were on our bikes and like, I, like I wrote that I like, uh, jumped on from my bike to his bike to, to tackle him or something. Um, I don't know. It's just that kind of thing. It's very, I don't know, not juvenile. I mean, the story that I wrote was juvenile and stupid. Um, and it took place at Meadowood park. Um, but anyway, um, so so dumb. Anyway, um yeah, but the, the the kind of action elements of this episode of science fiction theater um are pretty fun. Um in their own right. And also it, it I found it kind of interesting like the episode takes place in the desert and it feels like the set was a little bit different than the set that we're accustomed to in this show um that keeps being reused and recycled and everything. So I definitely noticed that in the outdoor scenes in the desert were pretty, pretty cool and, uh, looked, looked varied, varied compared to the other, uh, scenes that we've seen in the show, which I kind of like this. I, I, and I don't know if this is the case, but it kind of feels like maybe like, this is what the 27th episode of the first season of science fiction theater. Maybe they've gotten a little bit more in their budget to do more filming some other places or in different locations. Maybe there was a change in, in the production. I don't know, but, uh, it is noticeable and it's, it's interesting. So I think that that's just about all that I have to say about the water maker. Once again, it is available online, uh, as of this recording. But again, I think that if you're interested in, uh, watching these episodes, um, maybe consider going on eBay and grabbing, uh, um, uh, what I assume is just a burned DVD of, of the show. So you have it on physical media and everything. So I don't know, but anyway, uh, that's something to consider. Um, but 
I think that should just about do it. So uh, once again, guys, uh, thank you so much for listening. And uh, thank you so much for supporting me in any way that you do. Like, even just listening is is so nice. And I'm so thrilled to have you guys as listeners. If you do want to further support what I do, uh, consider checking out Patreon, patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. I do bonus episodes, I do uh, bonus reviews. Like I said, I did uh, severance, I've been doing a lot of the Marvel shows. I do immediate reaction recordings um, for movies uh, that are new releases and everything. Um, every like every Patreon supporter gets early access to this to episodes. So like this episode is going to be uh, posted on Thursday of this week. I'm recording this Sunday, and I'm going to post it on Patreon pretty much once I'm done transferring it and getting it edited and everything tonight. Uh, so that's another incentive. Also, um, <laughs> as a little teaser, um, I will have an immediate reaction recording for, uh, for a movie, uh, well for clerks three next month. So, uh, you don't want to miss that. So anyway, uh, that will do it for this episode of anthology. Next time I'm going to be reviewing the amazing episode, kick the can, um, and I'm going to be coupling that with The Unexplored, an episode of Science Fiction Theater, uh, from November of 1955. That is available on the internet as well. So, once again, thank you guys so much for listening, and I'll see you next week. And now, enjoy this short clip from our Patreon-exclusive RSS feed. For the full clip and more exclusive Patreon content, such as early access to episodes... TV, book, and movie reviews and reaction recordings, commentary tracks, and Patreon poopery episodes, go to patreon.com slash obsessive viewer and become a patron at the minimum rate of $1 per month. Thank you and enjoy. And Colin Farrell asks her, did Yang ever talk about wanting to be human? Did he ever think that he should be, like, did he ever th- wish that he was a human? Um, it's that old, you know, I wish I was a real live boy thing. And what it what the movie does is so cool because it just spins that on its ear. And Haley Lou Richardson says, like, that is such a that's such a human thing. Like, yeah, this this creature wants it like must want to be like you. It's so arrogant and everything. Um, like that's the ultimate goal of this thing is to be a human. Like, how arrogant is that? And I just love that so much because that's such an easy thing to try to put into the movie like oh he wants to be a human he wants to be a human being but he can't because he's because of his programming but this podcast was edited and produced by matt hurt and presented by obsessiveviewer.com you can find links to all of our shows at obsessiveviewer.com slash podcasts for exclusive bonus content including reviews commentaries and b-roll episodes you can subscribe to our patreon at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.